Okay, good morning. I want to thank Devor and Avi Orland for continuing to sponsor the Amunah Share memory of their beloved daughter, Miriam Esther Bas Avram Yitzchak, whose neshama should have an aliyah. And also our learning this morning is in honor of one of our members who's undergoing a, a serious surgery. Gosh Baruch who should guide the surgeon's hand to a complete and speedy and full refuah shlema. We are continuing um, with Revolbi. We finished the, last week we finished, uh, or two weeks ago, the section that we were studying in Ali Shor Chelik Bays in the second volume of Ali Shor. So uh, I was looking last night, I decided we'll just continue the next parak because I think it's very powerful and very insightful. And here, Revolbi. Yeah, sure. There's more copies there in the middle. Anyone else not get? Anyone else need? Revolbi, again, the great Mashkiach of Yerushalayim. Revolbi is a fascinating background himself for another time, but he had a, a tremendous capacity for human insight, insight into the human psyche and uh, for personal growth, development, really for penetrating into what is it that holds us back and how is it we can break through. And his forum, whether it be his, his real seminal works, which are Ali Shur, the, the two volumes of Ali Shur, which are a collection of his Musar approach and the Vadim that he led, or uh, Sefer Yaz called Zuriya Ubinyan, Planting and Building, which is all about parenting and education. It's a small book. You sit and finish it in one read, but it's uh, really fantastic. But Revolva was incredible. And here he's going to deal with this in, in this next section, the continuing section that we're doing. It's Chelik Beis of Ali Shor, Volume 2, Perak Shishi. Marach HaShlishas Perak Shishi. And you see from the title itself, it's called Hishtadlas Ubitachon. And we've, we've addressed this several times over the years that we've been studying about Amuna together. There are a limited number of topics within the topic of Amuna, so we keep revisiting the same ones. We always joke, but it's true that Amunashir is really the same thing every single week. I say the same thing every week. So why do I come, let alone you? It's a good question. And the answer is very simple, because we could say the same things every week, and we need to hear it. Because an hour after we say it, I'm only speaking about myself, I already need it again an hour later, let alone a week later. So, you know, the notion about not losing your cool or your patience and not being envious or angry or jealous, remembering everything's for a reason, all the values of living with Amun Bitachon. We, we need a constant, constant reminder. That's why we daven three times a day. Chazal understood. Anshe Kinesis Zagadola understood. It's more than three times a day. It's why the Gemara says, Don't read it, What does Hashem want from you? Don't read the word, what? But read it, which means a hundred. And our rabbis deduce from here the obligation of making a hundred brachas a day. You can't make less than a hundred brachas a day. So much so do we follow this as a halacha. It's a mandate. You have to make a hundred brachas a day. So much so that on Shabbos it gets complicated. So during the week you have three Shemona Esrays of 19 brachas each. So you're at 57 brachas right there. So you're already more than halfway there. You're going to eat. If you've got an Ashkenazi GI track, you're going to make a few Ashri Yatsars. You've got, you're going to hit your hundred brachas. You're going to hit your hundred brachas throughout the day. So, but Shabbos you only have seven brachas, Shemona Esrei. So you're at 21, not 57. You lost a lot of brachas. How do you make it up? So in halacha, there's all kinds of discussions about <laughs> how you get to the other brachas during the day. I was when I spent Shabbos in New Square this past summer, so I always wondered what the origin of the Hasidic Minhag that you come home from shul, you make kiddush, you have crackers and herring and all kinds of food, and then, go, and then you go wash and eat. So I, not only did I wonder about it, I always wondered: isn't really keneged halacha? It's really not the halacha. It's what's called the bracha shenetzricha. Gemara says that you're not supposed to make... You might think the more brachas, the merrier. So let me make a ton of brachas. The Lachas says, no. If you make a bracha that's not necessary, that's not complimenting Hashem, it's doing the opposite. One should calculate, and one should plan, and you know which bracha you need. I'll give you an example. I have it with my kids all the time. You go to the pizza store, 
and you order pizza and french fries. And the french fries are ready and the pizza's not yet ready. Mm-hmm. So the french fries come to your table and there's no pizza, but the pizza's going to come momentarily. And let's assume you're washing on the pizza, which this is not a halachic sheer. But let's assume for whatever degree you're having enough pizza, you're washing on the pizza. Or you ordered, forget the pizza. You got your french fries and you got a tuna sandwich. Everyone agrees, tuna sandwich you got to wash on. So now you're really hungry, you want the fries. Should you make a bori priyadama and eat a fry or... So then, if the sandwich hasn't arrived yet, it's not a bracha shein technically. You know you're going to be getting bread, but the bread hasn't arrived yet. You want to nibble on a fry, make a bar priyadama, it's not a bracha shein But, let's say they bring you the fries and the sandwich. So, again, I don't want to disparage my own children. My neighbor's children will, on the way, they'll get up to go wash, and on the way to the washing station, they grab a french fry and say, bar priyadama, and eat a handful of them while they're going to wash. That's exactly a bracha shein it's a bracha you don't need. You're going to wash. You're going to say amotzi. It's going to cover the fries. That you're you're wasting a bracha. You're wasting Hashem's name. You're not complimenting Hashem. Your miscalculation, your your lack of adherence to his his calculation of how to make a bracha is actually accomplishing the yad. How do we get on this tangent? Because back to Shabbos. So why did Hasidim make kiddush? Isn't it a bracha shein You're going to start to have the herring and the cracker and the schnapps and the this and the this. What do you mean? Go wash. It's a bracha shein so my host told me this summer that the origin of the Chassid Jerminag is you got to get to your Meya Brachas, you got to get to your Hundred Brachas. So it's not a Bracha Shein if you're using it to get to your count of a Hundred Brachas. So you have the herring, and you got the cracker, and you got the kichel, and you got the whatever, whatever all the different uh, pre-meal meal. So you're going to add a bunch of Brachas, you make up a few Brachas there, that's why they do that. How in the world did we get to this? Someone's going to remember. Oh, shkoyach, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. No, 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 thank you. Thank you. How do we get on to that? May a brachas v'chol yom. Because ma'ashem l'kechashom ha'imach, what does Hashem want from you? Al tikrei ma, don't read it ma mem, hey, what? Elamea, read it a hundred. So why do you want a hundred? So the Rambam says, you know why we say a hundred brachas a day? The Rambam Mishnah Torah, who doesn't usually give the reasons, but the Rambam there writes, you know why you say a hundred brachas a day? Because we need no less than a hundred times a day to remind ourselves, oh yeah, there's a Hashem. A hundred times a day. Now you say a hundred times a day sounds like a lot, right? I forgot what the average is, but you're checking your cell phone many more than a hundred times a day. <laughs> so if you're willing to check your phone, whatever the number, a thousand times a day, I don't know, they have the research out exactly how often do people check their phone a day. I promise you it's more than a hundred times a day. If you check your phone more than a hundred times a day, you could check your rebonus shalom a hundred times a day. So, so easily distracted are we so easily do we lose our way and we, do we lose our mindfulness and do we forget to be conscious of Hashem's presence in our lives? We're, we are so pathetic, you'll excuse me, but we are so utterly pathetic that we need to be told a hundred times a day. A hundred times a day. Now, is Hashem super needy? If I said to my wife, I need you a hundred times a day to call me and say you love me. So we'd have a problem on our hands because no matter how much... No matter how much she loves me, it's just debilitating. You know, it's, how needy are you that a hundred times a day you got to call and say, I love you? I got it. Once a day, in the morning, in the evening. Okay, twice a day. When you wake up, say you love me. When you go to sleep, say you love me. Ganuk will call it a day. A hundred times a day you got to say you love me? A hundred times a day? So is Hashem so needy that He needs a hundred times a day we have to say, Oh yeah, we love you. Oh yeah, you're here. It's not for Hashem. Hashem has no needs. Hashem has no feelings. Hashem doesn't lack anything. We're not doing it for Hashem. We are so vulnerable. We are so pathetic, for lack of a better term, that, that we need a hundred times a day just to have a shot of remembering this Hashem in our life. 
He's asking it of us, but unlike the spouse who asks it of the other spouse because in fact they're needy, Hashem asks it of us not because He's needy, but because He knows what's best for us. He knows what's best for us. So He's asking us to remind ourselves a hundred times a day, don't eat the chocolate cake. A hundred times a day, don't forget to go for a walk, get your 10,000 steps. A hundred times a day, we do this. We, we now spend a lot of money on this. We buy electronic gadgets that we strap around our wrist or we put in our pocket or we wear around our neck or we wear on our belt. We, because we're so pathetic, I mean, think about it. It's 2018. I have to pay a lot of money to get something to vibrate on my arm to tell me get up <laughs> and walk. Get up and the new, I don't even know where the app came from. It tells me to breathe. <laughs> now, again, you're laughing, but I forget to breathe. Now, I don't forget to breathe that I, I'm going to die. I'm not at risk of dying. <laughs> But you're on the move and you're running and you're looking down and you're doing... Breathe. Slow down your respiratory system. Take deep breaths. There's a lot of actually um, studies today showing that, that we're, we're suffering our pulmonary. We're not getting the oxygen that we need. First of all, we're looking down all the time because we're looking down at a phone, at a computer, at an iPad. We're looking down our gadgets. So when your head is down, you're not getting in the air that you need. And we're always racing and running and going and doing that we're not slowing down and taking deep breaths. So... We have gadgets that are set to a certain frequency to remind us, get up and take five steps. Use sedentary, pathetic, low life. Get up and take five <laughs> steps. Right? So it means that it doesn't matter who you are. The President of the United States, Apple Watch is, is ringing on his wrist. The CEO of the Fortune 500 company, you could be a billionaire, you could be the greatest uh, professor, academic, Nobel Prize winner. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how accomplished you are. We all need the gadget to remind us, don't forget to breathe. Don't forget to take a few steps and walk around. So if that's what you need for breathing and that's what you need to take steps, Allah has come come, all the more so, we need to remind it a hundred times a day, this Hashem, don't forget, delicious grapes. Wow, where do they come from? They're delicious, they're succulent, they're sweet, they're incredible. A cup of coffee, wow, it starts my day, it's tchiyas amesim, it brings the dead back to life. <laughs> it's unbelievable. The gift, the, the, the gift of a cup of coffee. Yeah, I can't take my hand. Yeah, the gift on a frigid Boca Raton day. It's 47 degrees when I left my house this morning. On a frigid Boca Raton day, you could turn into an icicle. HaKosh Baruch gave us a cup of coffee. Oh, Shahakal Niyabidvar, everything is from Hashem. Wow, I almost forgot. I almost forgot. I grabbed a cup of coffee, I drank a cup of coffee, because I grabbed a cup of coffee while I went to the Chavriz, when I went to the Shir, I got a Dhamma. So I forgot. I forgot this Hashem. I forgot that the discovery of the coffee bean was not a given. Anyone know when the coffee bean was discovered? The coffee bean has not existed forever. It's not even existed since antiquity. I don't know that much about it. But the coffee... Yeah, the coffee bean is... There's an amazing article. There's an academic article I once read that, that actually traces the origin of Tikkun Lo Shavuos, of staying up all night for Shavuos, to the discovery of the coffee bean and the beginning of coffee houses. That... That, that in the same region and at the same time, you see this notion of whether it was Tikkun Lel Shavuos, Tikkun Lel Shana Rabbah, certain practices of nocturnal practices of staying up all night happened. I forgot, there's an academic article about it. My point is the coffee bean didn't always exist. There were generations of human beings who had to find a way to wake up without the coffee bean, who had to warm their kishkas on a cold morning without being able to sip a hot coffee. We have it. Wow, what a reponishalom, what a gift. So a hundred times a day, why am I telling you all this? This is all just an introduction to this year. Why do we meet every week and we say the same thing every time? Because if I have to say it a hundred times a day, I could do it once a week. 
If I make a bracha a hundred times a day to remember. So the Rambam writes in Mishnah Torah, why do we say a hundred brachas a day? Yira Shemayim. Hashem is invisible. You can't see Him, you don't hear Him, you don't touch Him, you don't smell Him, you can't t- feel Him. So how do you know He's there? So a hundred times a day we have to reawaken, re-arouse our mindfulness that there's Hashem. The truth is, you can hear Him if you're listening. And you can see Him if you're looking. But we forget to listen, we forget to look. So a hundred times a day we stop and we say, you know what, I'm not just going to look at my cup of coffee, but I'm going to re-look at the whole world. I'm going to zoom out the lens. I'm going to see the big picture. Not only do I have a cup of coffee, I'm able to swallow. Not only do I swallow, I'm able to afford the cup of coffee. And if the cup of coffee just came from Starbucks, I'm able to pay a 1,000% markup on a cup of coffee. Wow, I'm in a position to be able to do that. Wow. So the shahakal is not just on the cup of coffee. It's I, my swallowing mechanism is working. I can afford it. I didn't just spill it on myself. It's, ama- it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So a hundred times a day. Ma'asham al-kacha, meya. A hundred, the Rambam says, a hundred times a day, Yerushalayim. A hundred times a day, we interrupt, we stop, and we think, wow, wow. So if Hashem gave me the cup of coffee and the coffee bean and gave me the presents, and the, then you know what? He also, the traffic is from Him. And the frustrating email is also coordinated from Him. And everything that happens, it's all from Him. It's not random, it's not chance. It is by design. It's by design. It's all from Him. It's all from Him. It's the mentality I'm supposed to look at. I'm supposed to live with, even when other people hurt me. Sefer HaChinuch says, why is there a prohibition of taking nikama? Why does the Torah have a prohibition of taking revenge? Now, I can hold someone else accountable. If you rammed into my car and you're supposed to pay for my car, I can take you to Beisden and you have to pay for my car. But I can't take revenge. And why can I never take revenge, says the Sefer HaChinuch? Because if you take revenge, what you're saying is, it's the other person who hurt you. But you know what? They're just an agent. Hashem can send that person to ram your car, or he can make a hurricane cause a tree to fall on your car, or he can make a hundred ways that your car could have been dented. So he's the one who did it. He was deserving that Hashem used him as the instrument. So you can take him to Beisden and, and get the compensation. But you can't take revenge, because then what you're doing is you're knocking God out of the equation. You're knocking God out of the equation. So when I get a nasty email, or something happens in my life where I feel someone's hurt me, which Baruch Hashem doesn't happen often, but it happens. I try to stop and I try to think to myself, what am I meant to learn from this? Because if a person has to be held accountable, they're held to be accountable. I send the security committee after them and we break their legs, but <laughs> I hold them accountable. But aside from that, you can't take revenge. Why? Because then you're knocking Hashem out of the equation as if Hashem had nothing to do with it. Human beings are empowered to be able to affect one another. Not everything is from Hashem. It's all from the Ribbon Shalom. A hundred times a day, I stop. A hundred not just the three times a day of Shemona Esrei. Not just Moda'ani when I wake up in Kriya Shema while I'm falling asleep. So it's not a hundred, it's a thousand when you add up all the other components to it. But in addition to all those other times, in addition to them, there are no less than a hundred times a day. Come out of the bathroom. I'm about to eat some food. I'm about to daven. I'm about to, I'm about to smell a pleasant fragrance. I'm about to, I'm traveling today. I'm going to sit on an airplane. What do you think I'm going to take for granted? It's the pilot in the front of the airplane that's going to get me there? It's the Ribbon Shalom. It's got to say Tfil Saderach. It's another bracha. So, I'll get to 101 today. So, every, every 100 times a day, you have to. So, all that's introduction, why we're doing this every week. So, all that by way of saying, Revolb is going to deal with a topic that we've dealt with before, but he's going to deal with it in a new way. He's going to deal with it in a new way. And that topic is the topic of the relationship between human initiative and faith. What is the relationship between initiative and faith? Because these are contradictory concepts. They go against one another. Initiative says it's all up to me. And faith says it's all up to God. So which is it? Which is it? How can it be both? Aren't they in contradiction? Do I get the credit or does he? 
Who is the arbiter of its success? Which one is it? Aren't these contradictory concepts, aren't these in conflict? I know we like to say they're both, but how can they be both? How can they be both? Apparently Rav Nachman of Breslov says, I once spoke to Rav Shalom Arush, the author of Garden of Amuna, about this, and he says, I've shared before that, that conversation, he, uh, he says, he quoted Rav Nachman to me, that Rav Nachman says, it's like Basar Bechalov. Basar Bechalov is meat and milk. We're prohibited from eating mil- meat and milk. It's one of the severe prohibitions of food that we're not allowed to eat, machalos asuros, so severe that it's Asar Bahana, one's not even allowed to benefit from meat and milk. So now, meat, is meat kosher? Assuming it's kosher meat? Yes. Is milk kosher? Mm-hmm. It's kosher. Kosher and kosher, you put them together, you got not kosher. So, said Rav Nachman, Bechir Chavshis, free will, kosher. Emuna, Bitachon, does Hashem, it's kosher. Don't mix them together. Just think of each one separately. Don't, think of, don't, don't try to mix them together. When you mix them together, you get confused. So, okay, that's an approach. That's an approach. But we're going to mix them together. And we're going to try to see whether we can get a kosher mixture of them together. A kosher mixture of them together. So says Ravoba the following, A Jew lives with a different perspective on the world than the rest of the world. A Jew is wearing a different pair of glasses. A Jew is looking through a different lens. We're living a different mindfulness, a different consciousness, a different reality. And not, not from an arrogant or, or a judgmental or discriminatory way towards the rest of the world. More in an obligatory way, obligating us. So I'm not trying to offer a judgment, Khalila, against the non-Jews of the world who are capable of great things and living with God and so on and so forth, but more in terms of obligating us to wear a Jewish pair of glasses, a Yiddish pair of glasses, and look through the world through Jewish lenses. So the non-Jewish world, and again, I think euphemistically, he doesn't mean every non-Jew. You have non-Jews who have tremendous faith. You can have a Noahide Jew who is living entirely the Jewish view of how the non-Jews should live, Included in that, living with tremendous faith in Hashem. I think he means more euphemistically the secular world, secular culture, pop culture. Its roots are in this world. The whole world is defined by how many friends, how many followers, how many likes, how big is the house, how nice is the car, how much money is in the bank account, how good do I look, how much Botox, what is my plastic surgery, what brand are my clothing, how much am I in style. Everything is defined by the material world, the physical world, and by this world. It's all rooted, it's rooted in this world. Happiness is dependent on the experience and the pleasures of this world. Self-definition is defined by this world. Everything is this world. But we're not rooted in this world. We happen to temporarily be visiting and staying in this world. But we're aliens from another planet. And what planet are we from as aliens? We're from the planet Elokus. We're from the planet God. We really, in other words, we have this, we have this, uh, today is, uh, what is it, Chav Kislev? It's a continuation. Yom Tavsheni Show Chabad. It's still a continuation. Yeah, so Rabbi Tagor was wearing his... Uh, Kapata still this morning. I think the whole two days, no? So we could still invoke the, the Tanya. Uh, we keep it going, yeah. Why not? Why not? So um, so the, the Tanya's whole, we discussed it the other night at our Yutas Kislev Fabringen, but, but the Tanya, the notion of these two souls that we're living with, unlike many Machshavas Farm that talk about um, the physical impulse, the animal instinct or voice inside us is categorically bad or negative and it needs to be purged or removed or eliminated. The Tanya says, no, we have two souls and a Kosh Baruch Hu puts souls, if it's a component of a soul, it's not categorically negative. It can't be if it's a component of the soul. But even the Nefesh Bahami, even the animal impulse and soul in us, 
we're capable of channeling, transforming, directing, elevating, so that it serves a higher purpose. It's not categorically bad or good. It is. And then our mission is that our godly soul reigns supreme over channeling, focusing, elevating the, the animal soul that is in us. That's the Sefer Abenonim, the mission, the goal of Abenoni. A tzaddik is not even struggling. There is no animal soul. But the Benoni can be what we define as a tzaddik, meaning even the Benoni, the intermediate person, is the person who is what we would classically call a tzaddik, meaning they never sin, but there's a struggle. They're engaged in a struggle. There's a battle. They want to eat that thing or say that thing or look at that thing or go that place or do that thing. Even when they persevere and triumph and win and never give in, they're still called a benoni as long as they're engaged in the struggle. And the Sefer Abenoni, the Tanya is written for us. It is the book that was written for us. I quoted the other night that Rebzusha, the Rebbe Rebzusha said about the Tanya that the Balatanya was able to take such an incredibly large God and put him in such a small book. That's this notion that we're from the planet God. So in other words, the rest of the world, we have this conflict. We all walk around and we have a dual personality. We all suffer from multiple personalities. We have an animal personality that says, eat whatever you want, do whatever you want, look at whatever you want, go wherever you want. Be undisciplined, be unregulated, give in to your instinct, your impulse, your desire, your appetite, your temptation, your addiction. That's the animal voice. We also all have a godly voice that says, whoa, 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 be mindful, be conscious, be present. Is that right? Is that wrong? What the Tanya says, conquer yourself in thought, speech, and action the three levels, the garments of the soul. Soul has three garments and expresses itself in the world in these three realms. So we have the capacity to put on those garments or take them off or direct them. So the, the godly soul says, whoa, I know that I'm struggling. I know that you're in a wrestling match. I know I have an opponent. And I know the, the opponent in the other corner is saying, just do what you want, eat what you want, go where you want, look at what you want, do what you want. I'm telling you don't. I'm telling you there's right and wrong. And you're capable of owning your choices, directing your choices. You're capable of being in control. So what Revolba is saying is, without invoking any of this language or the Tanya, but I'm trying to translate it, what Revolba is saying is that the rest of the world, pop culture, the Western world, the secular world, it's living in the animal soul. It's, in the, it's rooted in the here and now. By the way, this is why the animal soul, how does an animal walk? On all fours and looking down. Because the animal is connected to this world. That's the animal. It's all about the this world. The human being walks on two legs, because we're all about striving to get back to planet Elokus. We're trying to get beamed up. We're trying to go back to planet Elokus. I had the best conversation with my son last night. I was putting him to sleep. I was lying with him. And my little son, Shai, he, he, he you know, so when kids just talk, you get an insight into how their brain is working, and it's just fantastic. So he says to me, he's falling asleep. I'm lying with him. He says, Hashem, Abba, who did Hashem create after Adam? Who was the second creation? I said, Chava. He goes, oh, that's right. And then who was next? I said, they're children. He said, oh yeah, Cain and Fievel. No, not Fievel, <laughs> Hevel, Hevel. He reminded himself. It wasn't Fievel, it was Hevel, good. And then he says, um, where is Hevel? I said, he's, he's in Shemayim. He said, right, that's right, because Cain killed Hevel. He said, so one second, where's Cain? Is he in Shemayim also with Hevel? I said, yeah, after he, Hashem forgave him for what he did, he also, everyone's in Shemayim. He said, oh, and then Hashem is going to make everyone come back when Mashiach comes, right? I said, yeah, well, this is a great conversation, right? He's just turned six. This is the best part I want to tell you to you. Then he says, but Abba, how do we all come back from Shemaim? Isn't it going to hurt when we land coming all the way from, <laughs> from, from there? Won't it hurt? <laughs> it's great. It's a great question. Well, it doesn't wow. exactly work. He's basically calling me out like, Abba, you don't know what you're talking about. You're making this up. You don't know what you're talking about. 
But he's like, yeah, won't it hurt? How do you come back? And if he killed him, does he come back with a knife in him? Havel? Fivel? How's he come? And won't it hurt when we fall from Shemayim? Isn't it? Anyway, unbelievable. So, so the animal walks on all two, because the, on four rather, and looks down because the animal's rooted in the here and now. It's the physical world. It's the appetite. It's the material world. The human being says, I'm visiting here temporarily. I've got a temporary visa. I'm, just, I'm not even unpacking. I'm walking on two legs because I'm striving. I want to get back upstairs. I want to go back where I came from. I want to go home. I want to return to where I'm from. I want to be able to go back home. So this is the contrast between these two worlds. So yeah, we're temporarily visiting here. We have a visa and we're, we're here temporarily visiting, but we're striving to go back home. So even while we're here, we're here, but we're looking through the lens of where we really come from. So we're living in the material physical world, in a world of pleasure and appetite and temptation, but we're living in it with our godly soul and our godly spirit. It's the Pasuk in Tehillim. Hashem ma'on atahayisalonu midor dor. Tefillah lemoshe. We say it in Shabbos mornings. Tefillah lemoshe. This is Moshe's tefillah. Hashem, God, ma'on atahayisalonu midor dor. You are our abode. You are our dwelling place. You are our escape. You are our place of refuge from generation to generation. Meaning, yeah, I'm here on earth, but where am I really living? In you. Even on here, I'm living in you. What, what is that idea? It's the idea of, you know, a country is able to have an embassy in another country. And the embassy in the other country has the status and the law of the country that the embassy stands from. Right? So, so the American embassy in Israel, it's now in Yerushalayim. So when you're on the property of the American embassy, where are you? Yes. You're in America. What do you mean? You're in the Middle East. You're in Israel. Right? The coordinates, the GPS says you're in Israel. But no, while you're in the embassy... You're in America even while you're in Israel. The Ribbon Shalom is our embassy. We're in this world. But ma'ona midor vador. Hashem, while I've been in this world, and I've been distracted by this world, and tempted by this world, and in some cases beaten and oppressed and persecuted by this world, where do I go? Where does a person go? If you ever saw the movie of when they escaped from Iran, they got him out, posing as journalists, what was that called? Yeah. When the, Shah, when the Shah fell, that whole episode, right? So the whole thing is they got to get to the embassy. Because once you get to the embassy, then you're protected. You got to get to the embassy. It's like your home base in a game of tag. You got to get to the embassy, and then you're home. So Hashem, no matter what was going on in this world around me, often not pleasant, but you're my embassy. You're, you're, really, I'm an alien from another planet, the planet God. But I'm a visitor here on the planet Earth the material, physical world, the planet animal. So how do, I, how do I go home even while I'm here? My embassy, where I can find a place of refuge, I find Hashem even while I'm here, is in the Ribbon Shalom. Secular, so Rav Hutner used to say, and he knew, he was a graduate of the Sarbon, where he attended with the Rav and the Rebbe, he was well-versed in philosophy. So Rav Hutner said, secular philosophers are trying to squeeze Hashem into this world. Where do you see God in this world? Where's the evidence? Where's the proof? Where's God? In this world. They're squeezing God into this world. Because if, if your core identity and understanding is this world, so now if you're trying to be religious, you're trying to squeeze God into this world. We're trying to do the opposite. We're trying to say, where is the place for this world in God? Not where is God in this world. What's the role and what's the place of this world in God? 
Meaning, is this world everything and now where do you find God? Or is God everything and now how do you make sense of this world? Which direction? So what Revolve is establishing is that a Jew is approaching the world from a different perspective. We're looking from a different angle. We're speaking a different language. We're coming from another direction altogether. So that is by way of introduction to this concept. So now a Jew has to look at how do we strike this balance between initiative and effort and free will and divine providence and faith? Is it all up to Hashem or is it all up to me? Who gets the credit when it goes right? Who gets the credit when it goes wrong? Are things the result of people's choice or are things the result of the divine will? We're coming that from a Jewish perspective, not from a secular philosophical perspective or psychological perspective or sociological perspective. We're coming at it from a Jewish Torah perspective. We're not trying to squeeze God into the world. We're trying to say, what is the role? How does the world operate within the role of, within the role of Hashem? So we began this piece, but I just want to interrupt to tell you how this fits into this week's Parsha very, very beautifully in terms of this balance, in terms of this tension. We'll develop this more. So far, we've just introduced it. It's an appetizer. We've set up the conflict. Which is it? Are we the credit? Are God the credit? How do, how do I go about my daily life? How do I figure out that balance? How can I create a sense of integration? But that notion of that tension fits very well into our parsha, Because Yosef excelled in Bitachon. Yosef at Sadiq was the king of Bitachon. Yosef's master, Potiphar, saw literally everything, everything Yosef touched turned to gold. He saw Hashem was with Yosef. Everything Yosef touched turned to gold. So Rashi says, what does that mean? How did Potiphar see that? Hashem. He could have seen that everything that Yosef touches turned to gold. He says, I have a Jewish account. I have a Jewish investment banker. I have a Jewish hedge fund manager. It's great. I always have a Jewish financial person. But he doesn't just say I have a Jewish financial person. He says, I have a Jewish financial person whose God has helped him succeed. All of a sudden, Potiphar is such a maimon, he's such a believer. Where does he see God? The answer is Yosef was the first key of outreach person <laughs> since Avram. But Yosef is the first who does it. You see, Avram held discovery seminars. Avram had an Isha Torah program. Avram did a very explicit, overt outreach. Yosef does it very, very differently. Yosef is a, is a financial wizard and works in finance. But what does he do when he goes to work every day? It says, Rashi, Shem Shamaim Shagor Befiv. Everything he does and he says, Be'ezrus Hashem, Mirz Hashem, Achaste Hashem, with God's help, thank God. He just, he drops, he's a name dropper. He's a name dropper. <laughs> Whose name is he dropping? Not some celebrity, not some athlete, not some wealthy person. The name that Yosef loves to drop is the name of Hashem. So how many, every single time, Potiphar says, wow, another investment turned to gold? How'd you know, Yosef? How'd you know to invest in that stock and that mutual fund to buy that piece of real estate to do that business? Oh, thank God. With God's help, this will go well. Thank God. Let's be grateful to God. So Yosef never sat Potiphar down and said, let me show you the Bible codes. But Yosef dropped God's name all the time. And the result was, Potiphar says, wow, God's been really good through Yosef to me. It's an incredible method of outreach. So we know that Yosef excels in Bitachon. All the time he's talking about God. We should not hesitate or be embarrassed or apologetic or defensive in the workplace, at the gym, in the supermarket to talk about God. To talk about God. It's our mission. It's why we're here. Our mission is to sanctify your name where? Barabim. Publicly. Everywhere I go. Thank God. Please God. With God's help. That's the holiday of Hanukkah. We're going to be lighting. It's not... We love Chabad and what they've done, but they don't own the holiday. It's on all of us. We, they've popularized lighting the menorah in the public square. 
But the holiday was designed to light the menorah in the public square. You have to light it, outside your home, visible, Pirsume Nisa. The whole idea was, I'm not apologizing, I'm not embarrassed, I'm not shy. I'm telling the world how amazing God is and the miracle that He did for me. That's our mission, that's why we're here. The final Rashi of the parsha tells us that Saramashkin forgot Yosef because Yosef put his trust in him. So here you have Yosef, the king of Bitachon. Yosef who excels in Amuna. And the end of the parsha tells us that Yosef languished in prison an additional two years. Why? Because he put his faith in the Saramashkim, in the Kaper. Fortune is the man who trusts on Hashem and doesn't turn to the Egyptians who are called Rahab for help. So now, what did Yosef do wrong? What did Yosef do wrong? He said to the Saramashkim, by the way, when you get out of here and you go see Paro, would you put in a good word for me? Please put in a good word for me. What did he do wrong? Jonathan Pollard did something wrong that there were people advocating for his release? What did he do wrong? Rabashkin did something wrong that people said this was a, too severe a punishment. It's incongruous with the crime. Don't we have to advocate and lobby in the public sphere? So what did Yosef do wrong that he said to Saramashkim? Wouldn't it have been irresponsible for him not to tell the Saramashkim? After all, we're supposed to do what? Ishtadlis. We have to take our initiative. So imagine Saramashkim is on his way out of prison. He says, Yosef, should I mention you to Paro? No, 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 no. God's going to get me out of here. <laughs> God's, you know, the old story with the helicopter and the plane and the rope. Right. So God's going to say, what do you mean I'm going to get you out of here? Why do you think I let the Saramashkim out? So he would go tell Paro about you. So Yosef did the right thing by asking Saramashkim to remind Paro about him. Why, is he stay, why does he have to stay an extra two years? So the common answer is because Yosef requested from the Saramashkim twice. Chazal explained that Yosef said, Zachartani his kartani, remember me and mention me. Twice he said to Saramashkim. So he said it twice. So that was excessive ishtadlis. It's one thing to do initiative, but you can't do excessive initiative. So there's a fine line for a Jew. We've got to find that balance. The right initiative, you got to do. Without the right initiative, you can't rely on God. Too much initiative, then you've cut God out of the equation. So, you know, it's like the, the three bears. It can't be too hot or too cold. It can't be too little initiative. It can't be too much initiative. Our mission, our mandate, which is very challenging in life, is you got to have just the right amount of initiative. So... So that we'll, we'll talk about that next week. Right. Can I say something? Yeah. Um, you know, I was learning this morning with my son of Shmuel, uh, and uh, we got to a point there that Shaul had the fight with Rishtim, and basically he saw, he saw that uh, the people started to leave, and Rishtim uh, is about to head them, and Shmuel is not coming. Seven days pass, and they're not coming. Right. And then he didn't know what to do. He said, almost a war. And like, I didn't dub it to Hashem. Right. So he sacrificed and he shouldn't have done it. And basically that was his punishment right. that the whole kingdom stopped. And then we were talking about it that, one second, you know, he was put in a place of Yishtadud and Bitahan. Right, right. And it, it was very powerful. And I said, you know, sometimes you're going to get to a life that, because think about what Shaul was. He was... The people leaving, he has this huge amount, 30,000 people about to right. kill them to get into a war. And Shwan is not there. So where is a fine line? He was supposed to wait seven Well, exactly, days. exactly. Or you could ask similarly. And it was calculation. Right. With like the sea, you could ask the same thing. We're standing opposite the sea. The Egyptians are pursuing us. And they start davening. The bitachon. And Hashem says, what are you doing? Start walking. Mm-hmm. Well, right. I understand. Like, what do you want from me? Like, which is it? Religion, me, is it davening to you? How do we find that balance? We'll come back to that piece of the revolver next week. In, in everyday life, like how are we... I have to make sure you come back next week. So, <laughs> we'll come, so next week. But just to finish with Yosef, and then I got, a, I got a plane to catch. So just to finish with Yosef. So the Chazal tell us that because he said it twice, 
rem- mention me twice, remind Paro twice, because he told him twice, he spent an extra two years in prison. So ask Reb Chaim of Brisk, ask the Heliger Reb Chaim, the Rav's grandfather, Reb Chaim Brisker, he asked his student Reb Shimon Shka, what would happen if Yosef would have just said it once, the Zachartani? So, again, Chazal say that Yosef spent two more years in prison. Why? Because he said, mention me twice. What would have happened if he said, mention me once? So, if Shimon answered, stay one year. Right? That's the logical conclusion. If two years, because you said twice, then if you said once, you stay one year. Said Reb Chaim, no. He wouldn't have been punished at all. He would have gotten out right away. Why? Because that's exactly the idea. Some ishtadlas, some initiative, you have to take. It would be irresponsible not to mention once. Please tell Paro. So it's not that twice is two years, once would have been one year. Twice is two years, once is zero years, because that was your responsibility. That's how you're going to get out. So that's exactly our mission, and that's what we're going to continue with next week, is how do we find this balance? What is the proper balance in life? How do we strike that balance? Take initiative, but not too much. i got to go to the doctor. i go to work. So what will it take for me to be a millionaire? If I work 14 hours a day? 16, 18 hours a day? 12 hours a day? God, God can make me a millionaire if I work one hour a day. But what would it take to make me a millionaire in one hour a day? What would that be called? A miracle. I can't rely, no, so I can't rely on miracles. So I can't work one hour a day and ask Hashem to make me a millionaire because that's going to be relying on a miracle. I can't rely on miracles. But is it proper to work 20 hours a day? No. No, because, because that's excessive. I'm not seeing my family. I'm not davening. I'm not, and so on and so forth. So what is the right amount of hours? Because if God wants to make me a millionaire, He can make me a millionaire in less than 20 hours a day of work. So what's the right amount of hours a day to work? That's really the question. Too little, you're relying on a miracle, it's too much bitachon, not enough ishtadlis. Too much ishtadlis, 20 hours a day, not only are you not relying on a miracle, you're relying entirely on yourself, and, God can, and you're neglecting the rest of your life from it. That's also irresponsible. Where is that, what's the just right bowl of porridge? What, how, much are, how much is exactly that amount? That's what we start with next week. Have a great week.